Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today is Halloween. So today I wanted to tell a story about possibly the most terrifying serial killer I have ever heard of. I've been consuming true crime content for years, watching Eleanor Neal, Kendall Ray, I remember discovering John Lorden's YouTube channel, and I remember when Danielle Hallen was first getting started. I remember when Stephanie Harlow first started making content. I remember the first episode of the Criminology podcast that I listened to years ago, same with The Generation Y, Canadian True Crime, and who could forget to mention Crime Junkie. Out of all the stories I've heard these creators tell, of all the rabbit holes I've gotten myself sucked into, of the thousands and thousands of cases I've become acquainted with over the years, there has really only been a handful that have shook me to the core. Of those being Chris Watts, the family annihilator from Colorado State, baby James Welder, who I have published an episode on, the case of Vincent Lee, who violently murdered and cannibalized Tim McLean on a Greyhound bus in the prairies of Canada, and American serial killer Israel Keys. Now, I want to preface this episode by saying that Israel Keys is terrifying, not because his crimes are more or less violent or cruel than anyone else's. In fact, during one of his murders, he led the victims out of their home where they had to step over a pile of broken glass, and so he let them put on slippers so that they wouldn't cut their feet. Israel Keys instead, is the unpredictable type, but again, not in a conventional way. Israel Keyes, for the latter part of his life, aside from traveling the United States to kill people, could be found at his home in Anchorage, Alaska, with his daughter or at his work. So, in terms of his daily routine, he was quite predictable. But when Israel Keyes was planning a murder, for every aspect of it that was calculated, there were aspects of randomness. He would plan well, but he would choose victims randomly. If you happened to cross the path of Israel Keys in the wrong moment, it could have been you, no matter your height, weight, hair color, sex, or gender identity, how you dressed, or even what state you lived in, because again, this man would travel. Almost like a good research study design, each individual from the United States population, and possibly even abroad, had an equal chance of being selected as a potential victim. But unlike a research study design, there was no opting out of this study and no compensation for participating. No way out and no way to escape if you were selected. Because that is where his methodical planning kicked in. With 11 possible victims in four different states, we have a lot to go over here. So I think it's a good time to jump right in. Israel Keys was born on January 7th of 1978 in Cove, Utah, United States. He would be the second out of 10 children to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys, a large Mormon family belonging to the third largest Christian denomination in the United States. Israel and his siblings were homeschooled, however, before many of them were even born, the Keys family decided to reject Mormonism entirely and turn away from the Church of Latter-day Saints. After doing this, the family moved to Colville, Washington, and lived a very non-industrial lifestyle. They stayed in a one-room cabin, operating entirely off the grid with no electricity or running water. The family began attending two churches while living there, practicing fundamentalist Christian ideologies and white supremacy. Later in life, Keyes would describe this living situation as quote-unquote Amish, likely using that for lack of a better term, 
but it seemed that Israel did in fact resent the way he was raised. In his teenage years, he renounced Christianity entirely and would eventually become interested in Satanism. He definitely didn't drop the white supremacy though, and this was actually a vital connection that Keyes made with two individuals he met at one of the churches he attended, Chevy and Shane Kehoe. These three became good friends, sharing an interest in guns, petty crime, and of course, white supremacy. At this time, when Keyes was about 12 years old, the Kehoe's father was actively planning for a race war. To what capacity, I'm not sure, but Keyes would spend a lot of time with this family learning all about the Aryan Brotherhood, a neo-Nazi organized crime system. The Kehoes also taught Israel Keyes how to hide, steal, and illegally sell guns, and by age 14, he had begun building pipe bombs and experimenting with them, likely also a skill picked up and encouraged by the Kehoes. As well, Israel developed a fascination with fire, one that he would carry on into adulthood. Now, if you don't recognize the Kehoe family name, the Kehoes became notorious later in life as they were devoted to the Aryan People's Republic and would spend several years engaged in organized criminal activity, both violent and nonviolent, that would fund the Aryan organization, including a triple murder in 1996 where Chevy Kehoe killed an entire family after approaching the family posing as a federal agent. Chevy Kehoe has actually been connected to more acts of domestic terrorism than any other right-wing extremist arrested in the United States. So there's that. You can see what kind of people Israel was growing up with. But in 1998, when Israel was 20 years old, he enlisted in the United States Army, serving at Fort Lewis in Washington, Fort Hood in Texas, and he completed a tour in Egypt. Israel was serving in infantry divisions. Infantry is a division of the military basically dedicated to combat, and that's what he was doing when he was in Egypt. But otherwise, he was known to be relatively quiet, and Israel kept to himself in the military, aside from drinking heavily on the weekends, according to people who knew him in the army. He was honorably discharged in 2001, and in that same year, he had a daughter with a woman he met the year prior. Around this time, he began living with them as a family unit in the Maka Reservation community of Nye Bay, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula, very close to the Canadian border, only a short ferry ride across the Salish Sea. However, in 2007, he took his daughter and decided to move to Anchorage, Alaska, where he would start a construction business called Keys Construction. Despite it seeming like Israel Keys was simply a hardworking man trying to provide for his daughter and find a place to reliably lay his head down every night, his insatiable, murderous desires wouldn't stop him from packing up and traveling across the United States frequently, trying to scratch that itch. On February 1st of 2012, Israel Keys kidnapped 18-year-old Samantha Koenig from her work at a coffee stand in Anchorage, Alaska during a night shift. According to an article in the LA Times, Israel kidnapped Samantha at gunpoint and held her for an entire day. Keyes took her debit card before repeatedly sexually assaulting her and finally strangling her to death the day after he kidnapped her. According to a family friend of Samantha's, Michelle Tasker, Samantha's boyfriend was supposed to pick her up from her shift just after closing time around 8 p.m. But instead, what was captured on the surveillance video of the coffee stand was a masked man approaching Samantha who was working alone, and suddenly she puts her hands up, almost like the masked man has a gun pointed at her. And this is when police say that, in fact, he likely does. 
This masked man is Israel Keys, who would lead Samantha away from the stand into her car before texting Samantha's boyfriend on her phone, telling him not to come pick her up like planned and that she was just running away. Obviously, her family and friends knew that this wasn't the case and that Samantha wouldn't just run away randomly one day after a shift at work. And once police were able to get their hands on the surveillance video of the coffee stand that night she left, they knew she didn't disappear of her own accord because obviously there's a masked man pointing a gun at her. It would be 10 days later on February 11th of 2012 when the Anchorage community alongside Samantha's family and friends would hold a vigil, gathering together hoping for Samantha's safe return. Like I mentioned, however, Israel killed Samantha just the following day on February 2nd, and so at the time of this vigil, she had been dead for nine days. After murdering Samantha Koenig, Israel Keys would leave her body in a shed and then leave to go on a pre-booked two-week cruise, departing from New Orleans to the Gulf of Mexico with his family. All the while, friends and family of Samantha were searching for her tirelessly. When he returned from this family vacation, Keyes removed Samantha's body from the shed and decided to take advantage of the relentless search for her, who was still considered missing at this time. I'm gonna warn you, this next part is kind of a lot. I had trouble reading it and I'm probably going to have trouble relaying it to you, but bear with me. Israel Keyes decided, after he returned from the family vacation, to apply makeup to Samantha's face before sewing her eyes open with fishing line. He then took a picture of Samantha's body with makeup on it and her eyes sewed open next to a copy of the Anchorage Daily newspaper clutched in her hand. Then he sent a text to Samantha's boyfriend's cell phone, quote, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? Without a second of hesitancy, everybody who knew and loved Samantha rushed to Connor Park where somebody noticed a sign for a missing dog named Albert. Underneath the sign for missing Albert, there was a plastic bag. According to Michelle Tasker, police were notified immediately. Inside the bag was a photograph, the one Keys had taken of Samantha, who had been deceased now for almost two weeks, but was posed, made to look alive so he could collect ransom. The ransom note next to it demanded $30,000 be deposited into Samantha's bank account for her safe return. Samantha's father happily deposited $5,000 within minutes, and only a few hours later, Israel Keys would make a withdrawal from her account using her debit card at an ATM. Unfortunately, police would be too late to apprehend Israel Keys at this ATM, but it wouldn't be long before he made another withdrawal, this time, however, in the state of Arizona, quite far away from Anchorage, Alaska, then another in New Mexico, and then another in Texas. If you're at all familiar with the United States geography, then it's evident to you, just as it was evident to Anchorage police, that Israel Keys was heading east across the country, although, mind you, they still didn't know who he was yet. On the morning of March 13th, 2012, Texas Highway Patrol officers Brian Henry and Stephen Rayburn noticed a white Ford Focus exceeding the speed limit down US Route 59. Local police had been notified that a vehicle matching this description was being driven by the individual who was using Samantha Koenig's debit card across the United States and had already made it through New Mexico and Arizona, as evident by surveillance footage. The footage of the driver showed him wearing a gray hoodie and sunglasses everywhere he went. And when Corporal Henry and Texas Ranger Rayburn saw the Ford Focus, checking all of those description boxes that they had been warned about, plus he was speeding down the highway, they knew it was likely a good idea to conduct a traffic stop. This driver, as you may have guessed, was in fact Israel Keys. 
and after questioning Keyes and evaluating his suspicious behavior, the officers conducted a search of the vehicle where they found a cell phone, debit card, and a piece of ID that belonged to none other than Samantha Koenig. Consequently, Israel Keyes was arrested without incident in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe in Lufkin, Texas. Keyes was extradited to Alaska soon after, and in what seems like a very surprising anticlimactic turn of events, Keyes willingly confessed to the murder of Samantha Koenig. However, police would be taken aback to learn that Samantha Koenig was not Israel's first victim, and that they, in fact, had stumbled upon potentially one of the United States' most prolific serial killers. With representation by defense attorney Rich Kurtner, Israel elaborated on some of his crimes, telling law enforcement that Samantha's murder made him feel sloppy. He told police that he knew he was becoming out of control, and that it was his careless use of her debit card while traveling across the United States that screwed him. With a confession secured and evidence to back it up, Anchorage police charged Keyes with the murder of Samantha Koenig, and a trial date was set for the following year in March of 2013. But this is not at all the end of the story. Keyes would divulge the details of Samantha's murder to police. He sexually assaulted and strangled her, and then dismembered her body and disposed of her remains at the Matanuska Lake north of Anchorage after setting up her body to use as bait for ransom money. After they were told where she was, Anchorage police would find Samantha's remains in the lake on April 12th of 2012, approximately a month after Israel was arrested. And at this time, Israel was claiming to police that he was ready to cooperate, since he knew that the case against him regarding Samantha Koenig was strong. But Israel Keyes was only willing to disclose details about his other crimes and help solve those cases with one stipulation. He must not become infamous. Israel Keyes wanted to be executed and kept very far out of the public spotlight. And what was his bargaining chip for this deal? According to the Anchorage police chief at the time, Mark Mew, was details of a double homicide he had committed in June of 2011. On June 8th of 2011, Israel Keyes broke into the home of Bill and Lorraine Curry, who were 50 and 55 years old respectively. The couple lived in Essex, Vermont, and were blitz attacked by Keyes in their home before being tied up and escorted into a vehicle where he drove to an abandoned farmhouse to finish the job. Israel Keyes had cut the phone lines to the home before entering it through the bedroom, and he told Bill in the rain to put on slippers so they didn't have to shuffle over broken glass on the floor from the window that he had broken in through. He would then escort them out of the house before driving them to that secondary location where he would shoot Bill and sexually assault Lorraine before strangling her. While telling police the details of this crime, Israel Keyes would also go into detail telling police that he didn't typically like breaking into people's houses to commit this type of crime but he decided to choose the Currys because of the layout of their home. He thought that it would be pretty easy to get into their house due to the way it was situated. But that was the only reason he chose to murder Bill and Lorraine Curry. What makes Israel Keyes so terrifying to me is his signature method for murder preparation. Two years before he killed Bill and Lorraine Curry, Israel Keyes buried a murder kit near their home in Vermont containing weapons, money, a shovel, trash bags, a homemade silencer, ammunition, zip ties, and Drano all in a bucket. This bucket was buried in a secret location, lying in wait for the day that he was ready to strike, for the day that he was ready to show back up in Vermont and chew somebody at random to murder. And in this case, he chose Lorraine and Bill to use his murder kit on simply because he liked the layout of their home. 
In one interview, Keyes is quoted as saying, I only left that stuff there because I was planning on using it eventually. I don't like to litter. After the murders, Israel moved the contents of this kit to Parrishville in the state of New York, where they remained until after his arrest when they were recovered by a dive team. Bill and Lorraine's bodies have unfortunately never been recovered, and neither have the potentially several other murder kits hidden across the United States as alluded to by Israel Keyes. Israel alluded to a lot of things, and although these murders plus the death of Samantha Koenig are really the only confirmed killings by him, he implied and partially confessed to several more. The authenticity of these claims vary case by case, but I'm going to talk a bit about some of them. Because honestly, the general consensus in law enforcement and online is that Israel Keyes is in fact responsible for more murders. It's just a matter of allocating the investigative resources to figure out which one. Sometime back in the 1990s, when Israel was a teenager, he picked up his first attempted victim, another crime he readily confessed to. According to FBI Special Agent Jolene Godin, Keyes admitted to an extremely violent sexual assault involving a girl between the ages of 14 to 16, where he intended on killing her, but for whatever reason, he decided to let her go. According to the FBI, this assault happened near the Deschutes River near Maupin in the state of Oregon. The victim was with some of her friends at the time, and somehow Israel Keyes was able to separate her from them before luring her into a secluded area in the woods where he would violently sexually assault her. Keyes actually spent a lot of time in secluded wooded areas, and he suggested to police that once he failed to execute the murder as intended this time, that is when he began killing people. Keyes was quoted as saying, I just accepted it was a matter of time, time and opportunity before I did something again. Despite all of this information readily given to police by Israel Keyes, the police have never actually been able to conclusively link this crime to any victim or police report on file dating back that far. So it's likely that this crime did happen, but it was never reported. As police pieced together the details of Israel's earliest crimes and tried to grasp the scope of his murderous rampage in his early days, they have truly attempted to identify this victim, but thus far to no avail. In fact, a lot of Israel's confessions have gone under attempted vetting processes to no avail. A good example of this is that Keyes alluded to police that his first murder occurred in Washington state in the late 90s, before stopping in 1998 when he joined the army. Despite authorities struggling to confirm the legitimacy of this claim, they do say that the information provided is credible, although no further details have been made public. However, Israel Keyes is also suspected of killing 12-year-old Julie Harris in March of 1996, who was abducted and murdered in Colville, Stevens County, Washington. Despite Keyes insisting that he would stray away from committing crimes against children, using his own daughter as a means to legitimize that claim, he was in the area at the time of Julie's murder, if you recall, he lived in Colville, and even Julie's own mother remembers him. In 2012, the year Israel Keyes was captured and almost 20 years after Julie disappeared, Julie's mother, Sherry Odegaard, says that she was shown a photo of Israel Keyes and instantly got an icky feeling. He used to hang around places where Julie would go. Now, I should note that 12-year-old Julie would go a lot of places, making it somewhat hard to narrow down exactly where Sherry saw Israel Keyes before, especially considering those memories were summoned 20 years after the fact. But on the day she went missing, Julie was headed to one of the many places she frequented. She was going to church. 
Twelve-year-old Julie was a spunky young girl who was known to be a bit of a prankster, someone who didn't let her disability stop her from anything. Julie had two prosthetic feet and was very involved in Special Olympics. She wanted to compete in skiing. But the year Julie went missing, her mother didn't let her compete in Special Olympics skiing because the 12-year-old girl had poor grades in school. Her brother, on the other hand, did not, and was able to go compete the night before Julie went missing. Sherry, Julie's mother, was quoted in an interview as telling reporters that neighbors of the street would take Julie and her brother to church, but Julie was heading out alone on the day of March 3rd in 1996 because her brother was out competing in Special Olympic skiing and again, she was not. Sherry said that apparently on that day, Julie had gotten up and gotten ready as normal but was never seen again after she left to go to church. Julie Harris's disappearance was classified as a homicide when her prosthetic feet were found in the area of Colville, right where the Colville River flows into Lake Roosevelt in Washington State. As well, the rest of Julie's remains were found in April of 1997 by children playing a few miles southwest of Colville. And despite several persons of interest being listed, including suspicions about Israel Keys, nobody has ever been formally implicated in Julie's murder. However, like I said, Keyes was familiar with the Colville area. Like I mentioned, he lived there as a child and a teenager, and this is when he met the Kehoe family. Keyes alluded to having committed his first murder in the 90s, not long after his first attempted murder, the one that happened by the Deschutes River. So the timeline of Julie Harris's murder does line up. As well, after his arrest, Israel claimed as an adult that he would never target children. However, at the time of Julie's murder, Keyes would have only been a teenager so he might not have viewed Julie as the young, innocent child that he would have seen her as as an adult, because at this time, he was in fact only a few years older than her. However, it's unknown how Israel Keys would have had the means to dispose of Julie's remains without help, considering she was found a couple miles from where she was taken. Some people speculate that if he did get help, it could have come from the Kehoes, but that's all we can do regarding Israel Keys' involvement with Julie's murder speculate. Another violent crime that some people think could have been committed by Israel Keys is the murder of 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her 27-year-old daughter, Susanna Stodden, in 2006. On July 11, 2006, the pair set out on an approximate four-mile hike to the Pinnacle Lake in Seattle, Washington. At some point during their adventure, the mother and daughter were shot and left to die along the trail. It was only a short amount of time after the women died when another hiker discovered their bodies and, terrified, left to go to the nearby campground, Gold Basin, to contact authorities. Mary and Susanna were known to be very positive, optimistic people. They loved being in nature and were passionate about making their corner of the world a better place for everyone. Mary, a librarian for the Seattle Alternative Elementary School, and Susanna, planning to start an internship teaching at the University Child Development School, were avid hikers and were intimately familiar with the trail they had taken that morning. Unfortunately, despite the killer not being very far away at the time police were called to the scene due to the fact that their bodies were found only minutes after they had been shot, as well as the area being relatively close to an urban setting, their case has remained unsolved and has thus gone cold, but due to the murder happening in Washington state around the time Israel would have been in the area, as well as the total randomness of this attack, with absolutely no motive concluded by police, many people consider him to be an appropriate suspect. 
However, the FBI has concluded that he was likely not involved, and upon even just some surface-level investigation into Israel's modus operandi, I kinda have to agree. Keyes confessed in one of his interviews to police that he preferred to strangle his victims, and he would only use guns quote-unquote when necessary, but he never elaborated on what constitutes as necessary. In this case, however, using a loud weapon in an area that, like I said, is pretty close to an urban setting, with not that much tree cover, at least not as much as Israel preferred when luring people into isolated areas, makes this connection unlikely, in my opinion. However, another murder that Israel Keys more than likely has something to do with than not is that of 48-year-old Deborah Feldman in Hackensack, New Jersey in 2009. Israel Keys did confess to the murder of a woman on the east coast of the United States in 2009 and then having dumped her body in New York State. The FBI is confident that this victim is Deborah Feldman. Despite Keyes refusing to confirm or deny who she was or divulge any further details of this killing, Deborah was 5'1, approximately 110 pounds, and was living in Hackensack, New Jersey at the time of her disappearance in April 2009. Deborah was last seen in her home, and although it's hard to find concrete information about Deborah's early life, it seemed that she was struggling with drug addiction and it may have been seriously affecting her relationships. If this is true, as some sources suggest it is, I can't help but wonder if this is why there isn't much news about her disappearance and death other than mentions of her name in articles related to Israel Keys. I couldn't find much about Deborah because of this. All articles about Deborah Feldman had something to do with Israel Keys. But in one article I did find, I found out that she does have a son, and I know that she did live a difficult life. Until her son Matthew was noted in 2019 that the FBI was certain of a link between her disappearance and Israel Keys, he was actually convinced that his mom was living in some sort of witness protection program, likely due to her high-risk lifestyle and the fact that her body had never been recovered. He just assumed that she was voluntarily missing. And it was a complete shock to find out that the FBI thought that his mom had been potentially a victim of one of America's most prolific serial killers. The most compelling evidence, however, of Israel's potential involvement in her case comes during a police interview. One by one, detectives slid photographs of missing people across the table towards Israel after his arrest. In an Alaskan interrogation room, he admitted to the Curry murders and had alluded to several more. And to police, it was looking like cooperation may come easy. With every photograph that Keyes didn't resonate with, he swiftly said, nope, nope, nope. He had nothing to do with those people. However, according to FBI Special Agent Barbara Woodruff, when the photograph of Deborah Feldman was slid towards Israel, he hesitated, unlike the others where he rejected the idea of involvement without skipping a beat. It was then when Keyes looked upwards from the table and said to the FBI agents across from him, I don't want to talk about her yet. There are endless Reddit threads and online forums discussing the identities of the 11 potential victims that Israel Keys claimed. Although, again, technically that number is only confirmed to be three, Samantha Koenig plus the Curries, it is evident that Israel Keys was prolific. He suggested to police that he killed, quote, just less than a dozen people while he was active. And in another interview, he said that the whole ordeal was entertainment for him. 
And entertainment it certainly was. This became apparent when Key stopped cooperating with police after he told them about the Curry murders. Like with Deborah Feldman, Israel sat across from detectives and gave little hints that he knew more than what he was leading on. But he also said things like this. You know, the things I've done and I, I didn't do them because I don't feel bad about them and I didn't do them because I felt I had no other choice. I did them for myself, so it's just as good, it's better actually for me to keep them to myself because they're from, they're mine. Sure. And, um, and so unless I'm gonna get something in return, aside from just an ego boost by talking about them, then I'm not gonna talk about them. I don't have any interest in it. Keyes was toying with police, playing an agonizing game of informational cat and mouse, give and take like a game of tug of war, except on the bottom of Keyes' shoes were stakes buried into the ground. No matter how hard Anchorage police pulled, Keyes was inevitably going to drag them through the mud. And that's exactly what he did. After the undeniable implication of more bodies, police began getting frustrated. FBI agent Steve Payne recalls saying, quote, the ground is freezing, Israel, unquote as the weather grew colder in Alaska, referring to how it would become increasingly difficult to dig up the dead that were disposed of by Keys as the winter of 2012 was approaching. This was becoming time sensitive. Police knew that Israel had more victims and he decided to stop cooperating out of nowhere. All police wanted to do was go find the bodies that they knew Israel had disposed of. They just wanted to solve their cases. They just wanted to bring closure to the families. But Israel Keys was all about control. Evidently, control had been very important to Israel throughout his entire murder spree. As I mentioned before, Keys would travel across the United States frequently, a total of approximately 35 times between October of 2004 and March of 2012, hiding murder kits in multiple different states. And again, it's likely many of them have never been recovered. He did this to be overly prepared, Two years before he murdered Bill and Lorraine Curry, he flew to Chicago, rented a car, and then drove a thousand miles, approximately 1,600 kilometers, to the state of Vermont to bury one of these kits, knowing one day it would come in handy. Like I said before, he told police that he preferred not to harm any children. He tried to, quote, avoid those situations. He also ensured that despite his victim selection being overwhelmingly random, that he chose people in accordance with ease of disposal. And he explicitly said that he preferred lightweight people. With each aspect of random selection, there were equal parts of control. The curries in the state of Vermont were chosen at random, but Keyes purchased a valid fishing license so that he had a legitimate reason to be in the state of Vermont. He always had a reason to go where he was going. To his neighbors, he seemed like a hardworking, outdoorsy, nomadic guy. But in reality, he was traveling so that he could kill without being caught. He could kill without being geographically profiled. Once he killed in one area, he would never do it again in the same place. And I suspect that this was to account for the fact that since he was buying things like fishing licenses, if suddenly there were numerous murder victims appearing in that same area, he would have been caught a lot sooner. But the frequent traveling and the no double dipping in the same area rules made it impossible for police to connect all of his victims. And again, geographical profiling wasn't even on the table. Clearly this worked because even today, almost 10 years after his 2012 capture, police still haven't figured it all out. 
This is why I believe that the only reason Israel Keys was actually caught was because he was using Samantha Koenig's debit card across the United States. He knew, just like police did, that this made him very sloppy. Otherwise, I strongly believe that he would have continued killing even today. When Israel was traveling between murder sites, he often turned off his phone or took the batteries out and would pay for everything in cash. He would plan his ruse, the murder, and the escape up to years in advance, and then show up at his chosen location and pluck somebody at random. He liked waiting in remote areas, parks, campgrounds, trailheads, cemeteries, boating areas, possibly because he grew accustomed to these type of settings as a child. If you remember, Israel spent a lot of time outside during his off-the-grid childhood and knew how to navigate his way around a forest. So it's not entirely surprising that he found those kind of areas comforting enough to explore his most violent fantasies. And a great point to mention is that having violent fantasies was the entire motive for Israel to be killing people. There have been no connections towards a motive of robbery, a motive of sexual assault, although at times those things did happen, but he did not target people with specific looks, specific affluence, specific anything. Now, the FBI has confirmed that Israel Keys did burglarize homes and banks, but those incidences were hardly violent. His murders were executed for no reason other than just because he could do it. And then if he wanted to rob somebody, he would rob a store. Or a home. Not a person. Only 10 days after his arrest in 2012, Israel Keyes attempted to escape custody during a trial hearing. Keyes managed to break the iron bar that held together his leg shackles and jump over the railing heading towards the entryway doors of the courtroom. Thankfully, he was tased and recaptured, but this event is a great segue to discuss exactly how Israel handles things when he starts to lose the control he so desperately tries to hold on to. He becomes sloppy. Israel admitted to police that his usage of Samantha Koenig's debit card across the United States was sloppy and that he felt himself losing control. Just as his violent thoughts and urges to kill began taking over his life, he let it make him irrational, and there was no way that his attempted courtroom escape was rational either. Again, another demonstration of him being sloppy. Due to his irrational and known violent behavior, according to Brian Brandenburg, Director of Institutions for the Alaska Department of Corrections, Keyes, while in custody, was isolated from other inmates under a special security classification that is reserved for individuals who are considered the most dangerous and potentially high risk. After his attempted courtroom breakout, that security classification was elevated even further. In April of 2012, only one month after his arrest, Keyes was subjected to a six-and-a-half-hour psychological evaluation by Dr. Ronald Roche, a Washington psychologist and director of the Mental Health, Law, and Policy Institute at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, only 41 minutes from the Washington state border. I was personally anxious to read the outcome of this assessment, and what Dr. Roche found out about Israel did not disappoint. A lot, actually, of what the public knows about Israel Keyes and his early life, including his unique childhood, comes from this interview. It was found that Israel was on the higher end of the intelligence spectrum with antisocial tendencies, although it's unclear if Israel met the diagnostic criteria for it to be classified as antisocial personality disorder. However, Dr. Roche was also able to uncover much of what we know about Israel's early obsession with weapons. He was apparently obsessed with guns as a teenager and would shoot at houses with a BB gun that he got his hands on. As well, Israel would steal guns from people and keep a secret cache in his parents' house, likely influenced again by the Kehoe family that I mentioned before with their exceptional affinity for violence and fondness for guns. 
Interestingly, apparently when Israel's parents found his stolen gun cash, all they did was make him apologize and return the guns. Now, this lack of punishment for what appears to me to be a very concerning behavior exhibited from a young child may just be a difference of parenting preference. However, Keyes was also notorious for starting fires and hurting wild animals in the desolate woods where he grew up as a teenager. The compilation of fire starting, weapon stealing, and hoarding, and animal abuse is enough to make anybody seriously question the well-being of any child. But somehow, Keyes managed to slip under the radar and would go on to develop into one of America's most calculated serial killers. Like I mentioned before, Keyes began refusing to cooperate with police not long after he gave up information about the Curry murders after his arrest. He told police that he wanted to remain anonymous, unlike most serial killers who would usually thrive off of notoriety. I think this is because in 2001, Israel Keyes became a father, and this was not only his alleged reason for avoiding violence against children, but also his reason to remain anonymous in media. He wanted to protect his daughter. But given the prolific nature of his violent crimes that he just couldn't help himself but execute despite having a family at home, as well as the cloud of potential unsolved mysteries that police were now faced with, realizing that they could be attributed to Israel, there was no way Israel Keyes' name was not getting out there. The consequence of this, however, was worse than police could have ever imagined. Not only has Israel Keyes become notorious with his crimes being sensationalized due to their highly calculated nature, but many of those crimes would continue to be left without concrete evidence or potential for confession by Israel Keyes, even as the 10-year anniversary of his capture approaches. Why is this? Because after Israel Keyes began gaining notoriety for his crimes, he decided to commit suicide on December 2nd of 2012 at age 34 in the Cook Inlet pre-trial facility in Anchorage, Alaska, before he ever had to answer for his crimes in court, and before he ever got a chance to divulge any further information on the potential 11 victims that he might have claimed. Israel Keyes managed to conceal a razor inside of the Anchorage Correctional Facility, where he slit his wrists and managed to restrict his airway with a bedsheet. Israel was not on suicide watch at the time of his death, but due to the high security status of his incarceration, officers were checking up on him approximately every 30 minutes. In the Cook Inlet pretrial facility, the lights came on at approximately 6 a.m. every morning. And only 23 minutes later, at 6.23 a.m. on December 2nd, state troopers were notified of Israel's death. Israel Keyes left a suicide note titled, An Ode to Murder, but divulged no further details of his crimes. As well, the suicide note was pretty badly covered in blood, and thus was barely legible, that compounded with what I consider to be very sloppy handwriting. The note was approximately four pages long, written on yellow legal pad paper, and from what was legible contained poems full of symbolism with themes of butterflies and moths comparable to Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, if you're not familiar, was originally a book made into a movie featuring a fictional serial murderer by the name of Buffalo Bill. The author, Thomas Harris, based some of Buffalo Bill's character on American serial killer Gary Michael Heidnick, who kidnapped, tortured, sexually assaulted, and murdered six women while keeping them captive in his basement in the state of Pennsylvania. Heidnick was a career criminal who attempted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity when he was arrested for torturing and murdering all six women. Thankfully, he was unsuccessful and was fully prosecuted for his crimes. Then, in 1999, he would die by lethal injection at the State Correctional Institution in Rockview, Pennsylvania. 
It's unknown if Israel took inspiration from Heidnik or just the Silence of the Lambs itself, considering Buffalo Bill's murderous rampage in the novel was based off of a combination of six total real-life violent offenders. Either way, the connections made in Israel's suicide note to the themes of Silence of the Lambs have fascinated those on the internet since his note was made public. Like I mentioned, his suicide note contained weirdly graphic and odd poems, and I'm gonna read you some excerpts from them. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my tongue, opening your trembling flower or your petals I'll crush. You may have been free, you loved loving your lie, fate had its own scheme, crushed like a bug till you die. Nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse from your throat, there will be no laughter here. I can assure you that if you heard me just quote those poems and like cringe a little bit, then there's really no need for you to read the rest of his suicide note because the entire thing made me feel that exact same way when I was reading it. I'm still going to link it on my website though if you are interested at crimopediapod.ca. After Israel's body was recovered from his cell on December 2nd, police discovered an additional document lying underneath his bed. In 2020, the FBI released photos of this paper, which depicts 11 skulls and a pentagram drawn in blood, with the words, we are one. The FBI believes possibly that this number, 11, like I've mentioned many times throughout this episode, correlates to the number of victims that Israel Keyes claimed while he was actively killing people. And again, despite Israel technically having only three confirmed victims, as well as several incidences of arson and robbery, which I hardly even touched on, essentially everyone, including the FBI, suspect more murders in at least four different states. Because of this, the FBI certainly have their work cut out for them now, especially now since Israel has died and will sadly never face justice for the deplorable things that he did. Thankfully though, according to Anchorage FBI spokeswoman Stacy Fieger-Pelessier, some aspects of this case are still considered open. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia, and I hope you enjoyed this one. It may be hard to believe if you're unfamiliar with Israel Keys, but I feel like I didn't even scratch the surface of what this guy did when he was alive. I only wish he could have been brought to justice and been somehow made to confess all of his crimes. Studying his motive has been especially interesting to me, and if only we knew the full extent of what he had done, we possibly might have more answers as to why the hell he chose the people he did. It's incredibly hard to imagine how somebody could spend years planning a murder only to select the victim at random. We are so used to victim profiles. Ted Bundy killed white, brown-haired women with middle parts in their hair. Jeffrey Dahmer murdered overwhelmingly young black men, some of them being teenagers. The Zodiac Killer targeted couples. John Wayne Gacy preyed on white teenage boys. Robert Picton killed white and indigenous Canadian women, typically sex workers. Serial killers often kill certain types of people. They have preferences and fantasies that they struggle to control. In the case of Ted Bundy, his motive to kill was intrinsic because it's undeniable that most of his victims look distinctly like his ex-girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall. But for Israel Keys, none of his victims or potential victims looked alike or walked in any of the same circles at all. They hardly lived in the same area or on the same side of the country. Serial killers intrigue psychologists as is, but the total lack of cohesiveness in Israel's murder selection combined with his meticulous planning and use of murder kits that he would bury years prior to a crime make him an anomaly in many respects. One that is distinctly terrifying, and I hope there are no more of his kind. Stay safe, everybody, and I'll talk to you next time.